Ready to level up your poker game? I'm Mike Brady, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend, poker pro Gary Blackwood. What's up, guys, and welcome to this week's podcast. Today, we're going to talk about firing that second barrel, when to do it, when not to do it, and the best hands to follow through with on the turn after you have bet the flop. That's right. Today, we're going to help you understand when to fire that second bet after you've already seen bet the flop, and how to know when it's better to simply check instead. We're going to run through a few different types of boards and talk about the types of hands that make the best double barrel bluffs on each one. We'll also cover how to tell which hands are worth value betting for a second time. This is the last episode of the first season of this podcast, but don't worry, we're just taking a four-week break. I don't want to put too much pressure on Gary and I to pump out these pods every week, so we're going to take a little four-week break. We're going to be back on March 29th with the first episode of season two. So let's get into double barreling. Before we dive into specific boards, I want to divide all double barrel bluffing hands into two groups so everyone is on the same page for the rest of the episode. Gary, what are those two groups of bluffing hands? So we have two different types of bluffs on the turn, our main category, which is equity, and then we have blockers. I say that equity is our main type of bluff because a lot of the bluffs are going to be high equity bluffs such as straight and flush draws but we'll have some bluffs that aren't straight or flush draws and they will be when we have minimal equity, but instead really good blockers. We used to think we never had zero equity bluffs, but they very much do exist and they're just as important as bluffing with those straight and those flush draws as well. A very quick example of having good blockers is say we open an MP, the big blind defends, the flop comes down king 6-6 six, six with two spades and one diamond. We bid a third pot on the flop, the big blind calls and the turn is an offsuit deuce. We, of course, have a lot of spade draws here, some straight draws as well. Those would be our equity bluffs. But we also like to barrel some 9-8 of hearts, a 7 of clubs type hands as well. And the reason for that is that the big blind mostly raises their trips, but they do call certain combos of their trips on the flop. And hands like 9-8 of hearts, a 7 of clubs block those specific combos of trips that the big blind is going to call with. So even though we have no equity, we use these types of hands to bluff because they have really good blockers. The trick is working out which combos are the best to bluff with when you're looking for those preferred blockers. Yeah, I think most people are are definitely very familiar with that first category, right? An equity-driven bluff, a bluff that you're making because you have a straight draw, a flush draw, maybe some overcards in some spots will, will kind of count as an equity-driven bluff. But then we also do sometimes bluff with blocker-driven hands, hands that block a really good portion of the range that's either going to call or raise versus your double barrel, So you have to bluff with some of those hands too in certain spots. Oftentimes it's going to be spots where your range is deficient for natural bluffs, but that's not always true. Sometimes a hand just has such good blockers like that 9-8 of hearts on King 6-6 example that Gary just said. You block the 9-6 suited, you block the 8-6 suited, two of the more likely hands that your opponent would call pre-flop, have flop trips with, and then check called the flop. So blocking those hands actually by a good amount reduces the likelihood that they're going to call the turn. So those hands, even though they have very little equity when called, they still like to bluff, they still profit that way, and they help balance out your value range. Let's get into some board types, starting with the boards on which there are a ton of natural bluffs. Gary, how do you approach double barreling on these more connected boards? Let's start with the value hands and then talk about the bluffs. So let's use the classic king eight dues rainbow button versus big blind. We bet our entire range on the flop for one third. The turn is the nine of clubs. My size on this turn would be an overbet. And as we've mentioned in previous podcasts, when our bet size is bigger, that generally means our betting frequency goes down. We're betting all of our two pair combos, all of our sets, all of our really strong hands, and we're betting king 10 and above. 
Our top pairs with a weak kicker like King7 go into our checking range, and those hands play a key role in protecting the rest of our very wide range. Remember, we have raised preflop on the button and then c-bet with our entire range on the flop. So we arrive to the turn with the same range that we've opened preflop with, which is an extremely wide range. Given our range is so wide here, it's really important that we understand that our checking range has a lot of air, so we must protect that checking range with our weaker top pairs here. In terms of our bluffs, king eight, deuce, rainbow with the nine bringing a flush draw. Super easy, we've got a bunch of jack 10, queen 10, queen jack, turn club draws. We don't have too many blocker related bluffs here, but the solver does find a bunch of random queen six suited type hands with no flush draw. That can be a little daunting putting these into our bluffing range. So if we want to simply focus on barreling with equity only, that's completely fine as we have so many high equity bluffs here to choose from. Yeah, I think for most people, that's going to be the best way to go. Don't worry too much about the blocker-driven bluffs when there are so, so many potential draws with which to bluff, you know? You don't really have to reach super far and find that queen-6 bluff, although the solver does do it. One side note here, too. In this spot, a lot of those equity-driven bluffs actually have really good blockers, too. And I, I think it's worth talking about so we can kind of help our listeners better understand like what you're trying to block. So let's talk about that king-8-2. King-8-2, turn-9 brings a flush draw. So Queen Jack, it has a gutter, right? Also has two overs to like middle pair, which, you know, could be good potentially. But you also actually block some of their best top pairs. Actually, their two best possible top pairs. So remember, we raised on the button, they called in the big blind. So they can have King Queen offsuit, they can have King Jack offsuit. So by having Queen Jack, you block those top pairs that they can have. You make it a little bit more likely that they have, you know, eight six, that flop middle pair that's now kind of really shriveled up and they're probably gonna fold it to a turn bet. So this is one of those examples where a lot of the equity-driven bluffs also have great blockers, but you're also going to see certain boards where there aren't a lot of equity-driven bluffs, and then blocking top pair on the king XX board with queen jack is still going to be really valuable, and you're still going to bluff with that hand. So continuing our discussion of that king 8-2 turn 9 flush draw board, a lot of draws, that's kind of how we're characterizing this board. What does your bet sizing strategy look like? I know you mentioned an overbet, but what specifically are you going for usually? So there's a bunch of different sizes that we can have on a bunch of different scenarios on the turn. Uh, for this specific one, I'll use a, a, an overbet, and my go-to overbet size is 133% pot. Some people use 150%, I personally use 133%. It's really important, though, that your sizing scheme is polarized, because as we've mentioned, your range is very polarized, and your sizing scheme really does have to reflect that. If the flush completes or the board pairs, I'll use 75% as my size. When it comes to overcards, say for example the flop is you know jack eight deuce and you bet one third, there are a couple of different ways that you can play the the overcard turns. Some people are using seventy five percent on the overcard turns. Some people like to really overbet those overcard turns for a different reason, and the reason is that, that you know on jack eight deuce the king is really good for you. Your opponent doesn't call the flop with like king six suited, whereas you're c betting king six suited. So some people like to you know really drive that that how good that turn card is for them and use the overbet. But the difference in AV, it's not that that great between 75 and 133% on the overcard turns. And in fact, there are a lot of overcard turns where you actually want to use 75%. So if you want to use that overbet size on selective overcard turns that are really good for your range, that's completely fine. If you want to keep your strategy nice and simple and just use 75% on straight completing turns, flush completing turns, board pairing turns, and overcard turns, completely fine to do that. Yeah, as usual, there are a lot of valid strategies. The key is that you have a logical and well-built range, given that size. That's kind of the, the key thing there. So I want to talk a little bit about sort of the power of overbets on, on boards like this and, and help people understand why they're so good and sort of why we do it. 
because this is something that I learned years and years ago, and it it's one of those moves that kind of felt like a cheat code for a while, and it, it still honestly does. It, re- it really does, but these days, more people do it, so it feels a little bit more like a shared cheat code, but it's an amazing play because it puts your opponent's range, at least a good chunk of it, in a very, very tough spot. Let's just think about their range on that King-8-2 turn 9 that adds a flush draw. So they're going to have a lot of 8x, they're going to have a lot of 2x, they're going to have some hands like pocket 6s, they're going to have a bunch of king x, of course. They are going to turn some 2 pairs with like 9-8, we'll put those to the side though, there's nothing we can really do to put those in a tough spot. And then they also have a th- another category of hands, which is draws that they've kind of picked up. They could have queen-jack themselves, you know, they floated it on the flop, which is pretty standard, on that board, and then they picked up a turn draw. There's some other stuff they could have too that maybe picked up a backdoor flush draw. On other boards, they're going to have even more draws. And when you bet 133% or 150%, or some people use 200% even, in that spot, their draws are in a brutal spot. They basically have to fold, for the most part. Some people might find a raise, but they basically have to fold. And you're getting them to fold quite a good amount of equity in that situation. Like, imagine getting someone to just fold an open-ender. I mean, they had 20% or so to hit that open-ender and have the best hand, and now you just got them to throw away 20% of the pot. Similarly, you know, their 8-6 on King-8-2 turn 9... It has equity versus your betting range. I'm not sure quite off the top of my head, but I would imagine, what, 15 to 25% equity versus your betting range? That's still a good amount of equity that you're getting them to fold. So leveraging your advantage in this way, the fact that you have a lot more strong hands and then also a lot more strong draws, it really puts them in a tough spot when they have their own like draw or not super strong hand, like a top pair with a weak kicker or a middle pair or whatever. And it really allows you to put max pressure on that range and pick up as much EV as possible. Yeah, I, I completely agree with a lot of what you've just said. And you know, something I want to quickly talk about, you know, when I was starting to, you know, really work on my game and uh, improve and really take poker seriously, one of the big leaks that I had was, you know, I would bet the flop on, you know, King Eight Deuce and I'd be really reluctant to to barrel the turn because, you know, my opponents called and my mindset was, well, they've called the flop, they're never going to fold on the turn. But as you've just said, Mike, their range in that spot is unbelievably wide. Once you start to factor in all the pocket fours and the queen jacks and the ace highs, you know, their range is not just top pair or, you know, strong second pairs or, you know, their trappy two pairs. You've got to really appreciate just how wide your opponent's range is. And as Mike says, you know, you put a lot of that range in really difficult spots. So let's not shy away from firing that second barrel because we don't fully understand or appreciate just how wide our opponent's range is when they call the flop. They don't just have top pair. They're not just trapping with bottom set. They've got a lot of ace highs, a lot of, you know, pocket fours, a lot of eight, six suited type hands that are going to just have to fold to that turn barrel. Yeah, good stuff and super important. All right, now it's time for more interesting boards, the ones on which there are few or no natural bluffs to choose from. How do you approach double barreling on these boards? So the only real type of boards where we have few to no natural bluffs are paired boards. All the other boards will have some type of draw on them that we focus on for the most part. Let's talk about two different types of boards. We've got 772, Club Diamond Spades, Queen of Hearts on the turn, complete rainbow, no straight draws, no flush draws, no draws here at all. We like to use our best 7x blockers here, hands like 8-6 suited, 10-8 suited, all those middling types of hands, and it's really important we use the suited combos that block the trips the most. We never use hands like Ace-3 or Ace-4 or King-Jack, and the reason for this is not only are they too strong and they have some reasonable showdown a lot of the time, but they also block the floats in our opponent's range that we're now trying to make folds. So 7-7-Deuce, when we see bet, our opponent calls with hands like Ace-High and King-High. So when we have Ace-High and King-High ourselves, 
We block the hands we're trying to make folds, but if we've got 10 high or 9 high, we unblock those hands and we also block the trips a lot of the time as well. It's really important to understand that our opponents won't always have tons of ace high and king high in their flop calling range, but in situations where they do, like button versus big blind, where it's wide range versus wide range, we like to use our 10 highs and our 9 highs to bluff the turn to make them fold their ace highs and their king highs. As we've already said, blockers are extremely important, but situations where you can unblock your opponent's folding range, that is a concept that is just as important as well. So you mentioned at the beginning of that answer that the only boards that we really have no or few natural bluffs are paired boards. I kind of want to ask about one that I would have thought has no or few natural bluffs. Let's go with king 8-4 after you raised from, say, early position, so we're not super wide. You see bet, get called, turn is a 2. So again, king 8-4-2, rainbow board. I mean, we have a couple draws there. You know, we have ace-5 suited, 6-7 suited, 6-5 suited. You know, that's 12 combos. Is that enough natural bluffs to balance out the value range? Are you starting to implement a decent number of blocker-driven bluffs on that board? Like, how are you approaching it? So obviously, as you mentioned, we've got some of those equity-driven bluffs. You know, we've got ace-5, ace-3, 5-6, six, 7-6, six, and the rest of our bluffs are centered around blockers and unblockers, for example. We don't block, we don't use a hand like ace-queen because, you know, the ace sort of blocks the hands we're trying to make fold. But a hand like queen-jack, which doesn't block ace-high, really good king-ex-blockers, that's absolutely in there. There's just one combo that I want to talk about. This is really quite technical. So king-8-4, deuce, complete rainbow. There's a big difference between 6-5 suited and 7-6 suited. 6-5 suited is a double gutter, so the solver will absolutely bet this. It's got a lot of equity. It's got, you know, eight outs. 7-6 suited, however, with just the gut shot, that actually doesn't make it into our turn barreling range in this very specific example. And the reason for that is that it just has one gut shot. It's only got four clean outs. And it has really bad blockers as well. It blocks 8-7 suited. It blocks 8-6 suited. It blocks pocket sevens. It blocks pocket sixes. All of these hands the solver is going to start to fold on the turn. So it's really cool to see how the solver differentiates between 7-6 and 6-5 suited. Both of them really don't have great blockers. They block a lot of the hands we're trying to make fold. But 6-5 suited has that the dub, double the amount of outs, so it goes into our, our turn balance range, and 7-6 doesn't make it in as often. It's, of course, completely fine if you want to barrel 6-5 and you want to barrel 7-6 as well. But I thought I'd give that really nice insight into how the solver sort of derives when is enough equity to barrel despite having bad blockers and when is not enough equity to barrel. Yeah, it's interesting that the solver actually puts an equity-driven hand to the side and then instead chooses to bluff with, I assume, more of those blocker-driven bluffs like the queen-jack, the queen-ten, the jack-ten that block those king-x, right? So yeah, pretty cool to see. I guess it's largely blocker-driven there, right? I mean, a gut shot isn't that much equity, so it's not a super high equity-driven bluff, so it's not really good enough to bluff for that reason. And then it has really bad blockers, as you said, you know, blocking a lot of the hands that we want to make fold. So we just check it back. And you know a nice upside of that? You're never going to get raised because you're checking back. You just got a free chance at your gutter. You know, maybe you hit a six or a seven on the river for a middle pair, and that actually wins at showdown. Whereas if you bet it and get called and hit a seven or six on the river, almost no way are you winning at showdown. You've sort of narrowed their range enough at that point to where a seven or a six won't be good for you. So you actually kind of keep their range wide enough to where your middle pair outs are potentially live. Kind of a cool thing. I know you had one more thing to say on the topic of how you approach double barreling on boards with no or few natural bluffs, so I'll let you take back over. Yeah, let's use one last example to get us really thinking about our blockers and our unblockers. So button versus big blind, single raise pot, ace, eight, three, rainbow. We've bet the flop, the turn is another eight. 
We have very, very few natural bluffs here. We want to barrel a hand like 10-9 suited on the turn, but not a hand like 6-5 suited. This is very similar to what we just spoke about a second ago. I encourage you all listening to pause the podcast and think really hard about why 10-9 suited wants to barrel the turn, but 6-5 suited does not. So both hands unblock the king-queen, king-jack floats that we spoke about earlier that we're trying to make fold, but 6-5 suited blocks hands like pocket fives and pocket sixes that we can make fold on the turn. 10-9 suited doesn't have that problem because, of course, the big blind three bets pre-flop with hands like tens and nines. This example is very specific, but it's a really good one to get you thinking about your blockers and, more importantly, your unblockers as well. Last thing I want to say is that mastering unblockers is no easy feat. It takes a lot of practice before getting this concept nailed down, but it is really important to get right. So let's really start thinking about our unblockers as well as our blockers. Yeah, I can kind of feel our some of our listeners rolling their eyes in disgust right now because I bet a lot of them are kind of just getting their minds around blockers, right? That's kind <laughs> of a that's a relatively new concept, especially some of the more intricate and granular usage of blockers by the solver and now we're giving them a new one unblockers all right guys we got another one for you if you do want kind of an intro to unblockers we do have a great article on upswing about it kind of a very unblockers 101 article so if you just google search like unblockers upswing poker you'll find it really quick i recommend giving that a quick read if you do want to get up to speed on that concept it's surprisingly important so Gary, what does your bet sizing strategy look like on these fairly uncoordinated boards where there's very few or no natural bluffs? So generally on paired boards, I won't ever use an overbet size. So whether the flop is paired or the turn pairs itself, I only use a 75% bet size on the turn. We've spoken today mainly about using 75% for most of our bets and then 133% or 150% on the complete brick turns like King 8, Deuce 3 or Jack 10, Deuce 5. You can kind of build your turn strategy around using only these two sizes and ending up with a very profitable yet very easy to play sizing scheme for all turn barrels in single raise pots in position. Yeah, good stuff. Those are two really great rules. Obviously, if you were to test five different bet sizes in the solver, it might prefer 85% over 75% on certain boards or whatever. But again, all of these strategies can be valid and will have largely the same EV. So just using those sizes, as Gary said, those are going to do just fine. Feel free to kind of just lock those in as your normal turn barreling size options. All right, so that was all great stuff. Let's wrap it up with a very general question and see where the discussion takes us. Do you have any helpful tips for double barreling that we haven't covered already? Yeah, I think the best way to approach it first is to work out what your preferred size is and then ask yourself whether or not your hand wants to bet. So look at the turn card, think what size your range wants to bet, and then think about whether or not your hand wants to bet or whether or not it wants to check. Sometimes it will be very easy to determine. For example, you have a middle set and the answer is yes, my hand wants to bet always. Other times you'll have a middling top pair and you'll have to really think about it. Sometimes you'll just have eight high and the immediate instinct is to check back always, but you must ask yourself if you have better bluffs in your range, work out what those bluffs are, or if you've got good unblockers and sometimes your eight high with no equity is actually going to want to bet. So it's really important we're not just automatically betting our top pairs or automatically checking our eight highs. We've got to really think about it. We've got to ask ourselves, do we have better bluffs in our range? Does this hand want to protect my check back range? Answering all those questions and then deciding, does my hand want to bet or does my hand want to check? Yeah, and I think the way a lot of people start in poker is they kind of look at their hand and they decide what that hand wants to do. And that can actually be okay against certain opponents. But I really like the advice to 
think about first what size does my range want to be betting here, then decide, okay, with your made hand, is this hand worth betting that size? Am I comfortable betting this hand for that size? And I'm going to call back an earlier example. We had that king 8-2 rainbow board, turn 9 bringing a flush draw, and you were talking about betting 133% pot, and you had said king 7 and king 6, they actually check back. And with that advice you just said, I think that makes perfect sense, right? If you're sitting with king 7 on the turn, king 8-2-9, and your size is determined to be 133% pot, if you bet, you're going to bet 133% pot, do you really want to rifle in an overbet there with top pair, low kicker? Probably not, right? I think most hands that call you are going to be better. You know, they're at least going to be very strong draws that have good equity against it, and that's your best case scenario. So I think that's really good advice to first decide what size does my range want to bet, then look at your specific hand and decide, is this a comfortable bet given the size that my range wants to bet? Absolutely. And there's one last thing that I want to touch upon. You know, I spoke about myself, you know, when I was coming up and taking poker more seriously, etc. A lot of listeners might have different sizes that they bet on the turn for different hand strengths. And it's really important that we break that habit. It's a really common leak that people have. So let's use king eight, nine, deuce. Some of us, if we've got bottom set, we'll be happy to use an overbet. But then when we have jack 10 or 10, seven, or, you know, we've turned a flush draw, we might bet 75%. You make yourself a much tougher opponent by working out what size your range wants to bet and then using that size with your entire range that, that is betting, whether you have bottom set or you have jack high or you have ace high or you have nine high. So let's not be in the habit of sizing by hand. And what I mean by that is we don't bet really big with our strong hands and you know 75% with our draws. It's really important that we work out what size our range wants to bet and then decide whether or not our hand wants to bet. Yeah, and I always want to throw in the caveat, you know, if you're playing a very weak opponent and you know exactly what they're doing and you absolutely know you're not going to get exploited, do do your thing. You know, if you think they're going to fold just as often versus the big size as the small size... I suppose you can bluff for the smaller size and then value bet for the bigger size. That's a really good way to exploit them. But you have to know that that's the case. Don't just do that and assume all your opponents are bad and assume that's how they're going to play. Make sure you have good evidence before you're making exploitative decisions like that. There's one more thing that we haven't yet talked about, and that's when the turn is really good for your range and you get to bet super wide with your value, your blocker heavy bluffs, your equity bluffs, and even some complete airballs. For example, say we open the button, the big blind calls, the flop is 8-7 deuce. We'll use a large C-bet on this board. I'd personally bet 75%. So when we do, our opponent will not float us with hands like queen-jack. So that means when the turn is a queen, 8-7 deuce-queen, the turn is so good for us that we get to bet so often, and that includes a lot of air balls as well. We've spoken about high equity bluffs, blocker-driven bluffs, and now we're going to quickly talk about when you can bet with your with neither, with complete air, and that's when the turn is really good for you. Yeah, you know what it kind of reminds me of? It's like when you raise preflop, the big blind calls or whoever, and the board is really good for your range, so you get to see bet everything, right? This is kind of similar, but it's on the turn after you've already narrowed your range. So you've raised preflop with a bunch of hands. You've see bet the flop on 872. You used a big size, so you have a somewhat condensed range. You don't have your whole range when you're see betting there. But then that turn comes that's really bad for them, quite good for you, and then you now get to kind of make a range bet again. It's not the same as like a range seabed on the flop. It's, a, it's you know, a spot where you've already narrowed your range, but it's a very similar idea. You're leveraging your overall advantage there and you're just betting with everything, just like you leverage your overall advantage when you seabed with your whole range on the flop. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, these spots are not that common and they only really occur when you use a big bet on the flop and you really condense your opponent's calling range. So these spots are not too common, but they're unbelievably important. You know, the example we gave, 8-7 deuce, you bet big on the flop. Your opponent doesn't call queen-jack, they don't call queen-10. So when the turn is a queen, when the turn is a jack, you get to bet extremely wide. So be on the lookout for those spots because they're very profitable. Once again, say you've got, you know, 5-3 and you've opened the button, the big blind calls. Understandable if 8-7 deuce queen, you decide not to bet that 5-3 again on the turn, but actually you get to bet really wide with your straight draws, uh, your your blocker bluffs, and your air balls as well, because the turn is so good for your range. Those spots do pop up from time to time. They're an absolute print in terms of EV, so it's really important we're on the lookout for them. All right, that was all really good stuff. We've given you a solid overview on how to approach double barreling throughout this episode, but... I think you all know what I might say right now. If you really want to print money with your double barreling strategy, you've got to join the Upswing Lab and check out the many lessons that cover this topic extensively. We have a whole turn section that's all about how the solver and how our coaches play turns after either c-betting the flop or checking back. Really good stuff in there. If you go over to upswingpoker.com, click the green button in between Ryan Fee and Doug Polk. You can join today, get in our community, connect with the coaches, connect with your fellow members, and improve your skills. So, as I mentioned earlier, this is the final episode of Season 1. We're going to take a short four-week break, prepare some fantastic episodes for you guys, and we'll see you when Season 2 begins on March 29th. Thanks for listening. Take care.